So last episode, we talked about how the Dutch are rebelling against their government right now, specifically Dutch farmers. And it's in response to some more environmental policy that could shut down about 30% of livestock farms in the Netherlands. And we uh, touched on a little bit on where this is coming from, not just specifically from the EU, but also from the World Economic Forum surrounding this whole concept of the Great Reset. What we're going to talk about today is, is the Great Reset just a conspiracy theory? Or are there some legitimate concerns about what this particular policy might entail and what should our response be to it? All that and more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument. If you haven't already, head down to the description of this podcast. Join us on Volley, where we will continue the discussion with Nick, myself, Tina, and Christian. We would love to see you there. And if you leave today's episode understanding more about how to make the argument on this topic, I hope you'll let us know in the YouTube comment section and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you. As always, I am your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a good person with us, my beautiful wife, Tina, Queen of the Bees. Hello, everybody. Our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines. Hello. Producer of producers, Nicholas Hamilton, the good Hamilton that doesn't like central banking. As always, Nick, it's a pleasure to be here. Okay, well, we'll see about that. All <laughs> right, so we're going to go into this whole concept of the Great Reset. Because I'm I think a little it's bit important. concerned about this. I will just say, I am concerned that we are going to get flagged on YouTube just on, for on using Tuesday's that word. episode. The great uh, this word that we have already said and make it not monetized because we said it. They put a context claim below the video. If you haven't seen Tuesday's episode, go check it out. But yeah. yes, it, so it is a concern. Some people try to sidestep that and use you know like different language, like money symbols in the place of the S and yeah. well. I don't know if that works. Well, we, we done we done messed comment up. and tell us we've if you already, think we should we've already crossed try the line. We've already we've already crossed the line. So on this show, when we've crossed the line, we decide let's cross it some more. Yes. All right. So the Great Reset. What exactly is it? Well, it, it depends on who you ask. Right. For some people, it's, I don't know, the incoming of lizard people that are going to take over the world. For other people, it's just nothing more than a conspiracy theory banding about by right wing knuckle draggers. Uh, but if you actually go to, I don't know, like the World Economic Forum, <laughs> they wrote a book on it called COVID-19, The Great Reset. And it's not the first time this term has been used, but this is what's really you know garnered a lot of popularity for it. But Let's check out first, you know, what, uh, I don't know, we, we looked at the New York Times article on this, but there was a paywall. And I'm not paying for the New York Times. I don't think anybody should pay for the New York Times. Actually, that's not true. I think we've all paid for the New York Times in one way or another, but not monetarily. But the Anti-Defamation League had this article that they put out on December 29th, 2020. And it says, since first emerging in the spring of 2020, the Great Reset conspiracy has gained traction. With the ongoing spread of COVID-19 in both mainstream and fringe circles alike and its most common form, adherents warn that global elites will use the pandemic to advance their interests and push forward a globalist plot to destroy American sovereignty and prosperity. However, there are more outlandish and pernicious strains of conspiracy and the adoption of this term, Great Reset, particularly by mainstream figures with large audiences, creates dangerous opportunities for ordinary Americans to be drawn deeper into the world of conspiracies. So... According to the ADL, this is all just some sort of you know whack job conspiracy theory, um, but let's let's go to our next link here, and uh, what do we have here? Oh, oh, it's a sample <laughs> of the title of the book, which you can see at the top here: COVID nineteen, the Great Reset. <laughs> so again, according to the ADL, this is this was a conspiracy theory that arose within twenty twenty. Who, who's the ADL? The Anti Defamation League. Okay. 
rose in 2020 surrounding this idea that a bunch of global elites were planning to use the pandemic in order to reorder society. <clears throat> so the title of the book is COVID-19, The Great Reset, and it's written by um, Klaus Schwab, who's the head of the World Economic Foundation, which is... Forum, right? Forum, sorry, World Economic Forum, which is a series of global political and economic elites. Elitists. So let, let's just let's just be honest here. Like right off the bat, it doesn't sound good. The way that the Anti Defamation League is describing this, and then you go directly to the book that the head of the World Economic Forum wrote to describe in detail how we should reorganize society. And keep in mind, Klaus Schwab's been writing about how we should reorganize society for like decades. This is not new for him. He started, I think, in the seventies, but. It was recently in 2020, right? He wrote this book, right? And he had a co-author. We'll go into that later. But I, I want to read a, a little excerpt here. Um, As the historian Simon Schwama describes, in the midst of calamity, economics was always at loggerheads with the interest of public health. Even though until there was an understanding of germ-borne diseases, the plague was mostly attributed to foul air and noxious vapors said to arise from stagnant or polluted marshes. This was nonetheless a sense that a very commercial arteries that had generated prosperity were now transformed into vectors of poison. But when quarantines were proposed or imposed, those who stood to lose the most, merchants and in some places artisans and workers, from the stop page of markets, fairs, and trade, put up stiff resistance. Must the economy die so that it could be resurrected in robust good health? Yes, said the guardians of public health. The economy die. What do you think that means? Well, so, let's 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 scroll down just a little bit. There's one other thing I want to I'm assuming here. they're referring to the Black Death. Yeah. Um, here we go. And then he comes in and he says, history shows that epidemics have been the great resetter of countries' economy and social fabric. Why should it be different with COVID-19? So, again, this isn't coming from some far-right-wing far blogosphere. Directly from his book, he's setting, up, he's setting up the stage for why global pandemics are a great resetter for you know, economies, peoples, and nations socially and economically – and then posing the question, why shouldn't it be this way for COVID-19? So, no. Nick, what, what is it that they don't like about the current makeup of the world's economy? Well, it, again, if you look back, if you look back on what he's been writing about all the way since the 70s, is that he thinks he, he is not a fan of um, free market economics. Okay. Like not a fan of Milton Friedman. Um, he's actually got a different version, which we'll get into a little bit later on what, what he wants to do. But essentially, he doesn't think there's enough public influence within mm. the private sector. So there's, there's two things. Um, first off, it wasn't just a book. At the World Economic Forum's June 2020 meeting, they Called titled it. that meeting <laughs> The Great, Great Reset. Reset. So I, I love it how, like, you have, like, all of these, you know, the guardians of, of our public institutions, right? You know, Washington Post, Democracy Dies in Darkness. That's their, that's their mission statement, not a warning. But, like, <laughs> them, the New York Times, the BBC, like, like all of these you know, like mainstream media news outlets have tried to say that this is some right wing conspiracy theory. They broadcasted it and yeah. used the phrase. It wasn't us that coined the term. It was them. Yeah. I would like to make and a point that COVID was announced. It was started in March of 2020, right? Mm, well, well, COVID, no. COVID showed up in China. Yeah. Either December or November. Okay. We have evidence to suggest it began in November. It became public in December. I remember because it was December 2019. Right. I was in Florida okay. and I was like scrolling on my phone reading about this thing in China. 
And it didn't really become a big thing in the U.S. until February. Yeah. And then it became gotcha. a pandemic in March. Gotcha. Okay. So um, my point is, th this was pretty quick for them to turn around and oh, name this, an this, economic <laughs> forum the Great Reset. Never let a crisis go to waste. They but, had this book out quickly. <laughs> the other point that I want to bring up is that he's actually saying in this book down here that on the labor side, there will be gains at the expense of capital since real wages tend to rise after pandemics. So this is a an interesting argument that I've heard historians make in the past. So the Black Death in the course of like four or five years killed off about half of Europe's population which is like catastrophic, like COVID doesn't hold a candle to the Black Death. And what happened was, is that it's a popular theory that, that feudalism died off in Europe because so many peasants died that wages were able to rise for those survivors yeah. to the point that they could negotiate higher salaries and, and better freedoms and no longer be tied to the land that was held by nobility. Define feudalism for us real quick in this context. Long story short, feudalism was a, a, a social and political government system that was set up where you had a monarch at the top, either an emperor or a king, and he had lords underneath him, knights underneath that, and beneath the knights and lords were peasants, serfs, the, the third estate. They were everybody else. They were everybody from merchants to peasants just working in the fields. 99%, 98% of the population were, okay. were the serfs. And, and so the theory goes is that so many people died in the Black Death that it basically, it took about a century or so, in some cases a couple centuries, but it, it, it rapidly led to the demise of feudalism and the emergence of of what we would call the the early modern period, which is kind of like leading into, you know, the Renaissance period or free market economics, the emergence of capitalism, et cetera. But the problem with that is, first off, they didn't have money printers in the 14th century. We did. And for all of the talk of the great resignation and all of these workers in the modern, you know, economy in the West being able to negotiate for higher pay raises – well, that's being rapidly offset now by inflation. Um, and we didn't have nearly as many people die in COVID as we did in the Black Death. So so for for somebody like, like you know, Klaus Schwab to, to say, well, this is just like the Black Death. First off, that's a bit worrying. Yeah. And second off, he's drawing conclusions that I think he's he's intentionally trying to draw conclusions that he wants rather than seeing where the evidence goes. Because mm -hmm. if he's seeing where the evidence goes, he would understand that his idea of the Great Reset and, and workers being able to get more out of, out of their work because of COVID, that's being destroyed rapidly by the yeah. massive quantitative easing that's been imposed in the, over the last two years. Well, And, and, I, and again, it's, it's somewhat of a dangerous economic philosophy to say, you know what's really good for workers? Global pandemics that kill off millions of workers – like that's really that's where you want to go with this, there, Klaus. I mean, and, and let, let's go over to this. Let's go over to this next article because I think this is important for two reasons. And and what this article does, it's called the um, "What Is the Great Reset?" It's by the Independent Institute. You know, again, you, you can take this one of two directions. You can either say, "Well, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's just a conspiracy, right?" And and it's important. To, it's important to note that there is a distinction. We've gotten to this point right now where everything, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. It must be crazy. Well, no, a conspiracy theory is crazy if there, there's no reasonable basis to believe sure. believe in it. But the people that like found out about what was going on in the Tuskegee Airmen and how they were deliberately being poisoned by their government, that was a conspiracy theory. And then you found out, well, no, it was an actual event and that it was a conspiracy to make that event happen. Right? So it's important to distinguish between these two things. But here's what's, here, here's what's important to look at. Back in 2014, all right, at the World Economic Forum annual meeting, 
Uh, Klaus Schwab declared, what we want to do in Davos this year is to push the reset button. And he goes on to explain, by this he referred to a, uh, an imaginary reset button on the world economic system of neoliberal capitalism. A graphic uh, depiction of a reset button would later appear on the WEF's website. In 20, so that's 2014. In 2017, the WEF published a paper entitled, We Need to Reset the Global Operating System to Achieve the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations. Now, People that have been kind of like following some of the stuff the United Nations have gotten, there, there's sustainable development goals. That was, A lot of that was called Agenda 21. And there were the same people coming up like, oh, the, all these conspiracy theories about Agenda 21. Well, no, what it was is when you looked at what the United Nations wanted to do with sustainability and, and you looked at the sort of policies that would have to be implemented with respect to taxes, redistribution, regulations, um, you know, taking away property rights. You had to do those things in order to meet the sustainable development goals. So it wasn't a conspiracy to say, well, you're 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 actually relying on a, a international organization to implement policies through either governments or um, you know treaties that are going to achieve these sorts of ends, right? That that's not a huge logical jump. So this was 2014, 2017. But here's what's interesting. <laughs> and you scroll down a little bit. Next. The World Economic For, uh, uh, Forum organized two events that eerily anticipated COVID-19, which became the next primary inspiration for the Great Reset Project. In May 2018, the WF collaborated with the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security to conduct the Clade X exercise. It was a tabletop simulation of a national response to a pandemic. The exercise simulated the outbreak of Clade X, a novel strain of a human para-influenza virus with genetic elements of the NIF, uh, I'm going to screw this up, but Nipah virus. According to Homeland Preparedness News, the Clade X simulation demonstrated that the lack of both a protective vaccine and a proactive worldwide plan for tackling the spread of a catastrophic global pandemic resulted in the death of 150 million people across the earth. Clearly, preparation for a global pandemic was in order, right? So that's a 2019, ex or excuse me, 2018 exercise. Scroll down a little bit more. A little over a year later, in October of 2019, all right, so let's go back to the timeline here. We first started hearing in the news rumblings of this thing that was going on in China in Wuhan province around December, right? December, November, December. Well, we heard about it in December, yeah. but there's substantial amounts of evidence to suggest that it was becoming a thing in November. Okay, so I, I just want to get everyone's timelines in order here. They did this first exercise, 2018. May of 2018, the second exercise comes in October of 2019. The World Economic Forum's uncanny presence was again on display, only this time with greater precision. Along with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the WEF teamed up with John Hopkins University to stage another pandemic exercise called Event 201. Event 201 simulated the international response to the outbreak of a novel coronavirus. Two months before the COVID-19 outbreak became international news and five months before the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic. The Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security summary of the exercise closely resembles the actual COVID-19 scenario, including apparent foreknowledge of the so-called uh, asymptomatic, asymptomatic. asymptomatic spread. You can do it, honey. You can do it. <laughs> Event 201 simulates an outbreak of a novel zoonotic coronavirus transmitted from bats to pigs to people that eventually becomes efficiently transmissible from person to person, leading to a severe pandemic. The pathogen and the disease it causes are modeled largely on SARS, but it is most transmissible in the community setting by people with mild symptoms. So That's interesting because they said that, that it came from bats originally. Yeah. 
uh, because they didn't want to talk about Wuhan. How uh, can lab. anyone look at this and not think to themselves, there's this something is the script. sketchy going Definitely. on? And, and that's the part, right? Like, again, I, I would say there are some things that are coincidence, and there's some things that are conspiracy. Now, I'm not suggesting, let me make something very clear. I'm not suggesting that the WEF got together with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and John Hopkins University because they knew all of this was coming and wanted to be prepared to provide all the answers for why their economic reset plan that they already began laying out in 2014 and 2017 was what should be the next step forward. I'm not suggesting that. But it, it's not some like huge, this ain't Bigfoot. Right. It's right. not some huge leap here. People are looking at this going, this seems weird that you are you are almost exactly predicting what is about to happen a few months before it happens. And then poof, you're all set with your COVID-19, the Great Reset book, suggesting what we should do next. Yeah, that seems a little weird. Well, you're not supposed to believe your eyes, okay? You're supposed <laughs> to believe lying. what the Anti-Defamation League tells you. I'm I'm starting to think maybe we need to come up with new names for the Anti-Defamation League um, because I think maybe gaslighting needs to go into the name a little <laughs> Anti -democracy bit. Anti-democracy league. Well, it, so here here's what I here's what or I the say. Association of Gaslighting. Now now here now here's here's what we're gonna do next, right? I'm gonna try to paint this in the most positive light possible, right? Because when we look at the and, and here's the reason why I'm doing this. Can we also paint it in the most negative light possible just, <laughs> just to see how it goes? Sure, sure. Um, well, the most negative light possible we've already kind of discussed, right? It's the idea that you actually had people that were, um, you know, somehow involved in something far bigger than, hey, we got a new economic idea. <laughs> um, but but here's, what, here's what I want to say about this before I get started. And, and the reason why we're going to go into what the Great Reset really wants, because this, is, again, Klaus Schaub has been talking about this arguably decades before any of this ever happened, but especially in 2014 and 2017. I think what they want to do, take all the conspiracy theories out of it, I think what they want to do is horrible in and of itself and will have absolutely horrible results and will necessitate a, a kind of international governing body that would definitely destroy you know, elements of national sovereignty that we all currently expect um, within our, our, how our governments are organized and how they function and, and how they do what they do. I, I think it would be necessary to su significantly curtail, you know, individual national sovereignty in favor of international governing bodies in order to do what they want. The other thing that it would absolutely require is infringements on private property rights it would require a great deal of increased taxation. It would require a great deal of, of government organization within the economy. So let, let's assume for a second that all of the other stuff where it's like, no, Klaus Schwab and Bill and Melinda Gates, you know, helped design COVID so they could throw all of that out, right? I'm going to go ahead and just say for the purpose of argument, that's all a crazy conspiracy theory and you shouldn't believe it. Let's talk about what they do want to do and they are, are very proud to talk about, okay? Now, in the best light possible, here's how the argument goes. Because, again, I want you to be able to discuss this with somebody that thinks that this sounds yep. reasonable. So this is how it works. It's like, okay, well, wait a second. We did have a global pandemic. There were a lot of problems. We can all agree that our response to it was not very good. And, in fact, if, if you're talking with somebody on the left that's even more reasonable, they even say, we even agreed that there was huge problems with the World Health Organization and what China did. 
And part of the reason why we couldn't get to that better data is because the World Health Organization does not have the kind of funding and authority it needs to be able to find out what's going on within a country unless it gets the permission of that country's government. And if you do have a country's government, and let's face it, we all know politicians can be somewhat you know, corrupt and they, they want to hide things. If we don't have an international body that can hold them to account and then provide the resources necessary to the benefit of their citizens, well, of course you're going to have problems. And, and look, we're in an interconnected world. When you go to the store right now, you don't, you don't check the label for every product you buy, right? You don't make sure it was produced by a local artisan. You buy products and services from all over the world. I thought you liked that as a capitalist. But we also know that this ends up being vectors of transmission. Because with more international travel and trade, you're going to get more vectors of transmission. So of course... We need international organizations to be able to regulate these environments in order to achieve the desired outcomes. And that's just for the pandemic, but let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the environment. Of course, we know that human interaction and economic activity can have detrimental effects on the environment. And, and again, let, let's even talk about it. You, you've had countries that have destroyed their water. You have countries that have destroyed their forests. You have countries that have you know, you know, run, run species into extinction for the purpose of economic gain and capitalistic goals, unfettered capitalistic goals. So, of course, we need regulations that are going to protect the environment. And then ultimately, we have the issue of equity within society. I don't think anybody questions the fact that there have been massive economic injustices, social injustices that have gone on for centuries that we're just now starting to feel the real effects of and understanding how they've impacted generation after generation after generation. So of course there needs to be some sort of recompense. There needs to be some sort of reparation for that at the same time that in order to prevent it going forward, of course we need government regulations that are ensuring that these companies are behaving in the way that they should in order to meet their goals for equity, in order to make sure that we don't lapse back into a horrible past where we engaged in flagrant discrimination, where people were left behind while these robber barons were able to exploit resources for their own benefit and to the detriment of their workers. Now, think about everything I just said. I am thinking about everything you just said. And you know what? If I was a Republican running in a primary against you, I would just take that whole clip and I'd be like, look what Nick Freitas said. <laughs> okay, but you have to get the context right. here. Of course. Context, yeah. context. We're not saying, nobody here yeah. who's intellectually honest or anybody listening believes that Nick actually believes in anything yeah, that he does. Since when He was acting it out well. He really was. But, but that's that's the thing, right? It's what we want our audience to understand. Because everyone else in the world will do a bunch of hot takes on this and be yeah. like, oh, look at that. We own the libs. No, I want us to own own the argument. Yeah. I want the truth to be what what's driving Absolutely. how we talk about this and let's talk about it effectively because yeah. there's people that subscribe to all this that if they found out that somebody did something truly nefarious, they would be horrified by that. Well, something needs to be said about the fact that sometimes the truth can't be condensed into a 30-second soundbite. Absolutely. As stunning as it yeah. is, because that is the direction that we're rapidly yeah. going, I feel like in many respects that's part of the reason that we're in the mess that we're in yeah. mm -hmm. is because – and that's also why people have no faith in the media. There was a poll that came out recently that showed it was something like 8% of Republicans have any sort of faith in the mainstream media. And then, lo and behold, the people in the New York Times are like, why do people not believe us anymore? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because you blatantly lie about things and you misconstrue things and you take things out of context 
to Nick's point, though, that's the best case scenario. But I'm sorry, but even taking the conspiracy stuff out of it, trying to take the the Alex Jones narrative out of it for a moment, there's some elements within this that are way more nefar- way more nefarious mm-hmm. than what you just said. And I understand that you didn't actually believe in what you were saying. You were trying to build the best case scenario. Yeah. But like there's a huge element like I'm sorry, but but Klaus Schwab's stakeholder capitalism is really like capitalism with Chinese characteristics. Well, and that's how it's been described. Because it is it is a form of to be completely honest, it's a form of fascism. And and we can get into that later. But but what I mean by that is is that go and look at things like the ESG scores and stuff like that, the whole social equity scores. Well, let, let's uh, let's just jump into that now because that's really and this is the part where we have to when when someone says I have concerns because the pandemic was handled horribly, we can agree on that. When someone says I have concerns uh, about the environment, we can agree on that. When someone says I have concerns about you know different populations which were left out or deliberately discriminated against by their governments, we can agree on all that. But you you got to understand the way I phrase that entire argument in order to justify this reset stakeholder capitalism approach to economics and to government systems. The reason why I formed it that way is because I want you to understand one of the things they do is they take things for which there is very little disagreement about. Yep. And then they pretend like what they want is just solutions to that. Sure. It's, it's even worse than that because they also make it out to be who has any problem with addressing inequities or yeah. inequalities or, or mm-hmm. saving the environment or fixing it? And here's my solution to it. And by the way, if you have any objections, then you hate poor people yeah. or you hate minorities or you hate the environment or, or you want to pollute the world or kill people off. Like it, it, it is the most disingenuous form of argumentation that I have ever heard in my entire life. And it's been around for a very long time because we have talked about that Bastiat quote time and time and yeah. time again. Every time the socialists say we support X and we say we don't support X, they come back and say, oh, well, you don't support government schools. Well, then you're against education or you don't support government collectivization of the farms. Well, then you want people to starve to death. Like yeah. it, it is just a, a 21st century rehash of the same 19th century socialist arguments that Bastiat lambasted in his work, The Law. And, and there's so many examples of this. Take all the conspiracy stuff out. Just look at what they wrote. Yeah. You don't even have to 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 go to, to anybody else for it. You can just go read their freaking books or go watch their the YouTube videos of the of the World Economic Forum's meetings. Like it it's it's out there. Go look at it what the ESG stuff is. Go look at what they mean by stakeholder capitalism. They they throw these labels onto these things. Who's opposed to stakeholder capitalism? Well, you know what stakeholder capitalism is? It's corporatism. Well, that's and, what and it that's, is. And that's and that's what we need to we need to explain that to the Yes, audience. let's let's explain that. Okay. Because, again, here's what's going on. The first way that they will organize the argument will be in such a way as to say that some sort of, some sort of outcome that we all theoretically agree on, right? Like workers have better wages. We all, have, we all agree on that. The question is, how do you get there? Yeah. Do these folks in the UNWEF think stakeholder capitalism is a bad thing? No, no, they love it. They came oh, okay. up with they, this idea. So you got to understand. And, the re- and here's what I think is interesting about that. I think they deliberately put capitalism in there 
to try to make it sound like, oh, see, look, we're saving capitalism. It's mm-hmm. a solution to yes, unfettered and, and capitalism. And there's these other groups that have done the same thing. Um, they, they call it different things. But stakeholder capitalism was a phrase that I believe was coined directly by Klaus Schwab. And to give you an idea, stakeholder capitalism includes not only corporate responses to ecological issues such as climate change, but also rethinking their corporation's commitments to already vulnerable communities within their ecosystems. This is the social justice aspect of stakeholder capitalism. And the Great Reset. Governments, banks, and asset managers use the Environmental, Social, and Governance, ESG Index, to squeeze non-woke players out of the market. The ESG Index is essentially a social credit score for rating corporations. Now, the other thing to understand about this. So when they're saying stakeholder capitalism, the, the way that actually plays out in like a practical sense is it's juxtaposed with what Milton Friedman would call like free market capitalism. So capitalism is very simply an economic system where private people can own the means of production and distribution. So you can own the factory, you can own the tractor, you can own the plant, whatever it is. But the only way that you can engage within a free market capitalist system, the only way that you can engage in transactions is through voluntary cooperation. And this is this is the critical distinction. Everybody thinks capitalism is about profits or competition or it is about voluntary exchange. That is one of the key components, private property rights and voluntary exchange. When they switch it to stakeholder capitalism, what they're now saying is, well, no, no, no. For you to own that company, you have certain responsibilities. Mm. You have certain responsibilities, not just to your shareholders or to your customers, but to stakeholders. What's a stakeholder? Whatever it, we describe. It, can be, every, it I, can be anybody. I love how they use the word stakeholder because it infers that they have a moral obligation to participate in whatever action is going to lead to a more uh, prosperous world or, uh, you know, equitable. equitable, environmentally friendly. That word, I think, was specifically used to infer that. And I just find that interesting. Well, and, and the, the interesting part about this is that, again, <laughs> The, the suggestion is, is that stakeholder capitalism is one where corporations care about their people or their customers or they care about society in general or they care about the environment, whereas free market capitalism is one where they only care about pro- – that is not a fair distinction at all. They are creating a straw man and then they're tipping it over and saying, oh, but stakeholder capital – you can still have your capitalism – but yeah. now we're going to make it more socially responsible. Again, the the best way that I can think of it, an explanation to describe what this is, is Klaus Schwab's stakeholder capitalism already exists in China. It it, it, it it truly does. Because look at Jack Ma's Alibaba. This is a good example. Yeah. Um. So Alibaba is basically the Amazon of China, for those who don't, who don't know. And the current regime under the CCP in Beijing historically they were under Mao, they were like hardcore Marxists, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they had mass famines. They killed, I mean, Mao killed tens of millions of his own people through his own central planning and yeah. trying to impose Marxism. And that's a whole nother story. But starting in the eighties, China started to reform itself a little bit. They still had no political freedom whatsoever, but they did start to have economic freedom yeah. in the eighties and nineties. China started opening up. They adopted free trade. They adopted uh, a, a more liberal economic system. And by liberal, I mean classical liberal yeah. freedom. I don't mean modern American yeah, yeah. liberal. And and so they started adopting capitalism. Unfortunately, they didn't have any of the political freedom that, that we usually associate with that, but they started to allow economic freedom. And what happened was is that this new generation of leaders within the Communist Party of China emerged um, uh, in, in the 
uh, you know, early 2000s, around the turn of the millennium. And these were people that were like, they were old Maoists. They were they were fans of the 60s and 70s. Yeah. They did not like the, the 80s and 90s. And the reason they didn't like the 80s and 90s was because they associated the emergence of capitalism in China with Tianmen Square. Yeah. And they thought if you give people economic freedom, they're going to demand political freedom next. And we're not going to do that no matter what. And so what happened was is that over the last 10 to 15 years, China has really re-embraced Marxism in a big way. But they haven't done it the same way that Mao did, where it's just nationalize everything, collectivize everything, and send send people into the fields even though they have no clue what they're doing and just watch them starve to death. Instead, what they're doing is they're taking these companies that emerged in this 80s and 90s period when they actually had free markets. And so they're taking companies like Alibaba and the government in China is using these companies to achieve these ends. Yeah. And so they're restricting the, the free market. A good example of this is, is within the past couple of years, the, the CCP put a giant, it was like a $2 billion fine on Alibaba for violating some social equity standards that they put into place. And then they passed all these policies saying that like all these companies now have a social responsibility to the state and to society to do X, Y, and Z. And so what's happened is, is that People like Jack Ma, the richest person in China, have basically realized, okay, this is the way that the game is played, then we'll play that game. And so now they're dishing out like billions of dollars to basically cozy up to yeah. the central government and to the Communist Party in order to gain their favor. Well, and you're going to get the exact same thing in the U.S. where, where these, these woke corporations are going to realize that this is how the game is played. We got to adopt these ESG scores. We've got to do whatever it is that people like Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum want. And it's going to lead to a consolidate it's it's going to lead to less capitalism. It's going to lead to a consolidation of these industries. Well, and and here's the important here's the important part to understand about this, right? Because a lot of times on on the right, we'll look at something like this, oh, these are globalists, they're socialists. I, let me make something very very clear. What you are seeing right here with stakeholder capitalism like that is not socialism. It is not socialism. It is not Marxism. It's also not capitalism. It's not laissez-faire. It's not free markets. Um, so the question is, what is it? And has this ever been tried before? And the answer is yes, it has been tried before. Let me ask you a question, Nick. Why is it that they see this form of quote-unquote capitalism as the best means for them to achieve what it is they see as the you know, most well-rounded society. Well, the, the first thing you need to understand is it, it, it's not genuine capitalism. That's the first thing. But so the reason why I think they use that word is because they don't want to be labeled as socialists. Okay. They don't want to be labeled. As, and I think there's another component. They actually understand that there is some value in a, like the, the profit motive, people being able to, you know, do things to be able to improve their lives. Um, that has led to the, the largest amount of, you know, wealth and innovation across all spectrums. Mm-hmm right? Across, across all people than anything else in world history, right? So it's pretty hard to deny that there's some powerful motivators within capitalism. So what they do is they change it like, well, okay, but we don't want unfettered capitalism, right? We need socially responsible capitalism. Okay. Well, how do you plan to do that? Do you plan to do it by, you know, educating everybody on better way? No, they plan to do it through government power and control. Well, then how do you do that? And, the, and again, my question is, if it's not socialism, if it's not free market capitalism, what is it? And the answer is, if you want to look back through history and you want to find the governments that were implementing this kind of system where you still had some private ownership, but you had government control over, like, let's say the biggest industries. So like healthcare, education, um, major transportation, right? Like, like maybe railroads, airlines or railroads, right? Um, 
but you would allow other companies to operate it provided they operated in accordance with the will of the people. And who decided what the will of the people was? Government officials. So as long as you were producing to the extent that, and, and within the parameters that the government wanted, they would allow you to continue to operate and ostensibly own the company under their guidance. Okay. The economic system that did that was known as fascism. Okay. Now, when most people hear fascism, they automatically think Nazis. They automatically think anti-Semitic. They automatically think, um, you know, horribly expansionist and racist. And in part, and, and again, all of those things, I you know, certainly identified with um, Nazism, which was known as National Socialism. Um, but if you look within the Italian model, which was also expansionist and militaristic, no question. But if you look at the socialist model, and then you go and read what liberal news outlets in the United States, what Franklin Delano Roosevelt, what the left had to say about fascism in the early 20s and early 30s, they were praising it to the, they were all saying, this is a model. You actually had Bernard Shaw come out and describe the economic, he said, I finally found. Who's Bernard Shaw? Bernard Shaw was a very big liberal thinker, author, the whole deal, widely respected in, in academic circles across the world. Right. He, he actually came out and said, I believe it was Bernard Shaw. I'll, I'll go back and check that. But he actually said, I finally found something that describes the economics I, or the, the political and economic system. I want liberal fascism. So, by the way, the compliments weren't in one direction. No, um, there's there's actually a video on, I believe, on YouTube. It, it, um, uh, it was Joseph Goebbels that was sitting down with a. Uh, a translator talking about the politics in the United States, and he's just heaping. This is before the war, and he's heaping praise on FDR for for adopting the same exact models that we've used to great success in Germany and Italy. And there is something to be said about about all of this because fascism, when it existed in the twenties and thirties, did actually market itself as a third way. They literally called themselves the third way that we're not capitalist, we're not Bolshevik, we're not, we're not liberal democracy in the West, we're not, you know, communist totalitarian like they have in Russia. Um, but when you actually look at the origins of, of many of these great thinkers of, of, you know, fascist economics in the 20s and 30s, they all had socialist and Marxist roots. Every yes, single one of them. Every single one Goebbels of them. was a Marxist before he became a Nazi. You can actually go and, and look at his, his diary writings where he... Um, Goebbels kept a diary all the way until he died. And, um, and, and he talks about how, you know, well, these two horrible systems, capitalism and communism, they're both awful. But, you know, if we had to choose between one of them, I suppose we and he's talking about we, you know, the, the NSDAP, you know, I guess we would have to choose communism. Yeah. And Mussolini was originally a member of the Italian Socialist Party. And the whole reason that he created uh, fascismo, the whole reason that he created fascism was because he was kicked out of the Italian socialists during World War One when he came to a different conclusion than the socialists did. The socialists were very anti-war. They thought that the war was a, a big ploy by the, the big bankers and the capitalists to oppress the working man and that really the German worker and the French worker and the Russian worker had more in common with each other than they did with their capitalist masters. But Mussolini looked at the war and was like, this is a great idea. This is how we're going to get the global socialist revolution. We're going to have a giant war and it's going to collapse all the monarchies of Europe, which is actually what it did. It did collapse most of the monarchies of Europe. But 
it, what I'm saying is, is that it's not surprising that some of the originators of fascism, some of the creators of this system, they didn't come from ca- from from the capitalist tradition. None of these people were originally free market believers in and people like you know Hayek or or Bastiat or anything sure. like that. They all had socialist and communist roots. They all came from the left. They did not come from the right. Which is so funny because we usually today associate fascism and Nazism as a right wing ideology. It's not. It's a we left wing ideology. Well, well, I mean, look at there. There was this in a famous interview with Emil Ludwig. Mussolini reiterated his view that America has a dictator in FDR. In an essay written for American audience, he marveled at how the forces of spiritual renewal were destroying the outdated notion that democracy and liberalism were immortal principles. America itself is abandoning them. Roosevelt is moving, acting, giving orders independently of the decisions or wishes of the Senate or Congress. There are no longer longer intermediaries between him and the nation. The, the important thing to understand is, is not to suggest that everyone that supports this is a fascist in the sense that they're all militaristic, expansionist, or you know racist. It's to get them to understand that the economic model that they're now attempting to adopt has been tried before, right? And they can call it stakeholder capitalism all they want, but what it really is, is it puts the power in the hands of government entities and the cartels they help establish. And, and we talked about cartelization before. It's this idea that the government allows you to operate either with subsidy or free from competition, provided you do it within the boundaries they set for you. And, and the problem with all of this is that when we come out and we say, well, in order to do this, it will nece- especially on an international level, which is what they want, in order to do this, it will necessarily erode national sovereignty. It will necessarily erode private property rights. It will, by design, destroy free market capitalism. Now, just because you put it, just because you package it a little bit, you know, nicer, just because your marketing department has done a bang-up job, doesn't mean that we're wrong when we point out these facts. Yes, and and the thing is, is that most people don't know this. Most people don't know the history of fascism in the twenties and thirties, and so they see. Things like stakeholder capitalism or or ESG scores and stuff like that. And, and they think this is some revolutionary new idea, but it's not. It's a hundred-year-old idea that was horrible. You know what and, I and think it, some of that is, is? Is the meaning of words has a tendency to to change over time. And I think it's, it's purposeful because people will latch on to, oh, this is fascism. And they will start to change what fascism means to society mm-hmm. by labeling things that aren't fascism fascism and labeling things that are fascism something else oh yeah that's and why so, that's why conservatives we get I, I don't know about you but i'm willing to bet that nick and tina and hamilton maybe and i'd be willing to bet the majority of the people that listen to this podcast have probably been called by some left-wing friend or family member of theirs a fascist because they believe in free markets and defending the Constitution. And Well, in reality, they don't know what a fascist is. And part of it is because they are allowing language to be diluted in their mind. And we see it happening constantly all over the place. Words don't mean what they used to mean. And, And I think that this is one of the reasons why people so easily will go, oh, well, that was just an, a conspiracy. What we really want is this. And so then now you're a conspiracy nut for using the buzzword that they originally right. came up with themselves. Yep. Yep. And now they're labeling it something different. Wow. And yep. now it's a little more pa- better packaging so that as you can usual, consume it. As usual, the left is guilty of the very things that they accuse the right of doing. Yep. There are so many 
so many examples of this time and time again, and this is potentially the big one. Well, and I think I think we're gonna at one point we're gonna need to do a whole new we're gonna need to do a whole episode on on making the argument for why fascism is not only fascism was rooted in left wing ideology and political philosophy, political and economic philosophy. Um, but that most of the people right now that get accused of being socialist actually have actually have far more in common with Mussolini's Italy than they do Stalin's Russia. And, and, and one of the problems here, and, and one of the reasons why this always gets like packages, oh, that you're being conspiratorial, you're being mean, or you're being hyperbolic, is because when they think of Stalin, or when they think of Mussolini, or when they think of you know, Hitler, they're thinking you know, mass starvation, totalitarian regimes, they're thinking blatant racism, militant expansionism, and they're like- Invading Poland. And they're like, I'm not militant, I'm not racist, so clearly, like, yeah. no, 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 I'm not suggesting you are. I, I'm, it, you know, again, I'm not making this logically fallacious argument that because you're similar in one category that you're similar in all categories. I'm not saying you're a fascist with respect to the way you view race. I'm not saying you're a fascist with respect to the way you view the military or expansionism or colonialism. I, I'm saying that the economic policy you seem to favor bears a striking resemblance to every fascist government, every prominent fascist government which existed, which was largely Italian fascism, which was really kind of like the godfather of the movement, you know, Spanish fascism, you know, and then German fascism um, or Nazism, which was again different but similar in many. It was respects. a more it was a more race based fascism yes. because yes. It, it, Italian and Spanish fascism is the original fascism. The Nazis really kind of took the idea and then injected, you know, the Aryans yeah, and stuff yeah, like that yeah, into yeah. it. Master and, yeah. You know, Bolton. Tina, I think you made a great point about words and their definition. You know what another word is that I think does not hold the same meaning it did two years ago expert so nick i want to ask you this so i think it makes complete and total sense that we as americans or people that go about our daily lives would want to have the experts helping us plan the national economy the global economy so what are your thoughts on that well and, and again I, I think this is one of those things that falls into that realm that i commonly refer to of superficial plausibility that on the surface that seems to make sense why wouldn't you want experts going around and helping, at least helping navigate these decisions in, instead of just billions of people randomly going about their lives and hoping it works out. And, and the reason why it doesn't work in an economic system is for this. And, and Thomas Sowell articulates this beautifully. You can put the smartest people with all of the credentials, with all of the data that you could possibly have and the computer programs to analyze that data, and they will still not possess a fraction Right. of the consequential information they need to make decisions for your life. So the, the important thing to understand is an expert might be an expert. And, and again, an expert could just have a credential. That doesn't necessarily mean that they know what they're doing or they're sure. good at anything. But, but that expert is not a greater expert on your needs, wants, and right. desires than you are. Right? They, they don't know what your individual preferences are for the food you buy or the education that you want or the health care that you need or the the you know, occupational options that you would prefer. They can't possibly know that. Now, when you make a decision and you make a bad one, it generally affects you. Right. When an expert that's now pulling the strings for, you know, a, a multi-million person economy makes a bad decision, it negatively impacts a everyone, right? Like, so, so the, the cost of doing it that way 
um, is really absurd when you actually look at what's taking place. You're not ask, asking experts to make better decisions with respect to you know how a train runs, right? You're asking them to you know interfere on millions of economic transitions that are taking place on a daily basis right. by millions of people with different needs, wants, desires, and preferences. I would love for you just just to take a minute to talk to us about the beauties of the beauty of free market because this relationship that the consumer and the marketplace and the uh, producer have, I, I've heard you talk about this before. It is a fascinating relationship that works out well. And I would love for you to just take a second to talk about that. So there, there, was, a, uh, there was a paper written called iPencil sure. uh, by Leonard Reed, which mm -hmm. did a great job of this. But I, I kind of do like the iPhone, right? Right, right. <laughs> because I, I think this is a great example of it. I, I can walk into almost any room where I'm talking to people of, of different economic status, uh, different cultures, different religions, different everything. And almost all of them have one of these. This is miraculous when you think about you know, this didn't exist 15 years ago. Sure. So what I like to always say is, I say, okay, in, in, in 1980, they had, or in the early 1980s, they had cellular phones or they had mobile phones. It was the size and weight of a brick. It had a battery life of maybe 30 minutes. It didn't do anything except make calls. And even that was problematic and only the wealthy could afford them. And within a generation Poor people could have phoned some form of cell phone. Within two generations, we had phones where we're doing everything on them. Like Now, was this because some government board got together and decided, okay, let's collaborate on, on addressing the issues of communication? No. It was because millions of people all over the globe, many of whom never met each other, that worship different, you know, worship different in different, you know, churches or tabernacles that, um, you know, have very, very different goals, very different preferences with respect to what they do for entertainment. They raise their families differently, but they, they were working together across several countries, several continents in order to produce something that have made, that have arguably made our lives much better. And you could also make it maybe worse in some respects, but um, they all came together and did that within the marketplace. And that's what the marketplace does. It, it sends signals about what people need, want, and desire and then it matches that up with what other people can do and produce. And then there's this mutual benefit that, that takes place as a result of that transaction. But if you're, going to, if you're going to subvert or pervert this whole process by saying, no, 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 we're going to put government officials in charge of, of determining how that's actually allocated, how those resources are allocated. Okay, you can do that, and it's been done before, but it's produced disastrous results because ultimately what you're doing is you're taking away the freedom and you're taking away all the innovation and creativity and adaptability that comes from allowing free people to not only compete, but collaborate and cooperate with one another. And you're subverting that with a, a government agency or a bureaucrat you, you or a so-called expert. You mentioned signals. Why is it that the free market or businesses within the free market are so much more effective at reading those signals than the government? Because instead of responding to a government edict that came from a couple of, you know, experts, yeah. they're responding to millions of people making daily decisions within the marketplace. So, so why can't the government examine those signals and make accurate predictions about what those signals are going to lead to? Well, they certainly can, and they certainly attempt to. The problem is, is they're not as good at it as you making an individual decision every day. So again, if, if I let you all make, put it this way, 
there's two ways the company can make decision. I can make decision based off of what a, a certain group of approved experts are telling me you're doing, or I can just base it based off of what you're actually doing within the marketplace. And, and the moment experts impose their own bias into this, experts impose their own bias, they impose their own preferences, and the next thing you know, I'm not getting good data back based off of what you want, need, or are actually doing. I'm getting data based off of their interpretation of what you're doing sure. or based off of what they think you should be doing. And that becomes very, very problematic. And that, that again, okay. it perverts. It adds bad data into the system. I, I, I find this whole concept of free markets just to be a fascinating topic because just like you very did a great job of explaining, it must react to the consumer and businesses are required to make decisions based off of the interest of the consumer. And when when governments attempt to make those decisions, they do so reaping none of the consequences for being wrong. That That's actually, you know, Thomas Sowell, can't, Thomas Sowell said this beautifully. He goes, one of the dumbest way you can make decisions is by putting the responsibility for making those decisions into In the, the hands, hands of, of people that pay no price for being wrong. We love Thomas Sowell. And, and it, when it's a perfect way to describe what so often goes on within politics and academia where, you know, again, if if politics were, were more of a free market system, like very few of them would last sure. for, for any given period of time um, because you can immediately change them out for one that actually worked and did what you wanted them to do. Right. Um, but again, it's the beauty of the marketplace is the voluntary cooperation. Now, what's interesting is people will point to failures within the market. Right. People make bad decisions or they make a, they make a bad product or they uh, defraud. There's mechanisms within the system to, to prevent that. It's consumer feedback. Yep. It's, it's laws which say you can't defraud people, right? Because now that's lying. You're not engaging sure. in a free market transaction if you lied to someone about what you were actually doing, right? Or if you poison them with a product that you said wouldn't poison them, right? You, mm -hmm. You're still on the hook for that. But people will point to this and say, well, that's a failure of capitalism. No, that's a failure of reality. Sure. There's a great example between um, Kamala Harris and Elon Musk. Kamala Harris came out and said that she wanted in their energy bill to install thousands upon thousands of electric car chargers all across the country. And Elon Musk came back and said, that's not necessary. And I think that that's a great example because Tesla has to make an accurate prediction as to whether or not those chargers are going to be used. And if they are not going to be used, then they lose money. But when the government comes in and installs these chargers and they don't get used, the company which installed those chargers gets filthy rich and we spend our money, the taxpayer money, in the process. Well, and, and that's actually a part. So you'll hear a lot in government this whole idea of private-public partnerships. And mm -hmm. It's like, oh, well, this is a good thing. Well, no, not necessarily. Um, more often than not, what you what you really get is a, a private sector, a privately owned company has found a way to be able to get money from right. consumers yep. without having to appeal to the consumers. Right. Right. I don't want companies working for the government. I want companies working for, for the, me. Right. Yes. Like me as the customer. But if the government comes in and subverts that process and then says, oh, it's it's public private. OK, well, now you're you're leaning more into this whole version of stakeholder slash Right. You know, fascist economic policy where it's, you know, again, I also don't mean to imply that any sort of, you know, public private automatically falls into the realm of fascism. Right. But it, it's important to understand that when people say, I want to reorganize the economy in this way to address these problems, it's perfectly legitimate for us to come back and say, you know, this has been tried before. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to wrap us up real quickly, give us an overview of perverse incentives that the government may create 
by trying to reorganize the economy. You talk about perverse incentives quite often. I want you to define that for us. So, um, Solyndra. Okay. So what there, is, there, what is Solyndra? Solyndra was a company that was producing solar panels. It was one of the larger producers of, of solar panels um, in the 2000s. It bundled, like the, the CEO was one of the big bundlers for the Obama administration. So he bundled like, something like $10 million for the Obama administration. Well, when Obama got in there, lo and behold, there was, a, a, I think, a budget amendment that gave $500 million to Solyndra in order to produce solar panels. Solyndra went out of business, I think, nine months later. Wow. Because they had a bad economic model. It wasn't sustainable. But do you know who is not wondering where his next meal comes from? The former CEO of Solyndra. Right, that guy's still rich because he, he took his payout, he took all of his stuff and he invested that in other things, the whole deal. And when the company went bankrupt, it's not as if, yeah, he, he lost that job. It's not like he lost all of sure. his money. Now, Obama came forward and he said, well, that's, that's what happens in capitalism. You invest and sometimes the investments don't work out. Like, uh, no sport. <laughs> uh, that's not, capitalism is when you invest your money right. or, or the money that people have voluntarily given to you. To invest, yeah. Right, it is not when... You expropriate money from people through the tax system and then give them to the people that did the best job bundling money for your political campaign. Or, or even if you think it was a great investment. So the perverse, so what's the perverse incentive that was created there? You told a company like Solyndra, there's no need for you to make a marketable product if you can get sufficient government subsidies to keep you going. And we see that a lot within the green energy world is you don't have to create an economically viable product within the marketplace because the government will create conditions where it is economically viable, but the only way that they can do that is by punishing consumers. And they do that through higher taxes, more regulations, fewer choices. And so you create an economic system, and that's just one example, but you create an economic system where now you are essentially telling companies to do things that they would never otherwise do because it's horribly inefficient or ineffective in order to get government subsidies or protection. You see this within the sugar market within the United States. You see this within the ethanol market, within or the sure. corn market. Yeah. You see it within farming, where the federal government literally comes in and causes the price of food to be higher by paying farmers not to produce. Or they've actually come in and started, like during the height of the Great Depression, the government came in and bought tons and tons and tons of livestock and produce and then destroyed it. At a time when people were going hungry. And the what's what's the perverse incentive? Okay, well, I, I want more land. I want to I want more because the government's gonna pay me not to do anything with it. Another good example is the Jones Act. Yeah. Jones yeah. Act, which we've gone over on, on like a couple of And, and the time. irony of that is that the very industry that was advocating for that ended up being destroyed by yeah. right. by it. So so sometimes like these corporations that want government protections will end up hurting themselves in the long run without even realizing it. Mm. I, we recorded a Y Minute today that I think comes out not next Wednesday, but the Wednesday after that. And I think that it is the perfect example of the failures of central planning yeah. by government officials that we could find right now. Well, and it also, because you're going to see this common theme. I, I, did, I didn't tell you what the subject of the Y Minute is. You got to go to the YouTube <sighs> channel, subscribe, and then you can find out what it is then. Well, and, and the reason why that video is important, too, is because we always hear this common theme within things like stakeholder capitalism, where they're the ones trying to combat greed. Okay, that sounds nice, but I don't find anything quite so greedy. I mean, it is one thing for a greedy business owner to say, gosh, the only way I can get super rich is if I provide a good or service that people voluntarily buy. Right. Okay, 
whether or not their motivation is good, the incentive structure you've created is healthy mm-hmm. because now the only way for them to get rich is to produce goods and services that people want to voluntarily buy. And the buy. consumer has to say that this good or service is more valuable to me yep. than the dollar that I'm giving it you yes. for it. But if you transplant that with stakeholder capitalism, where now the government's going to intervene and it's going to prop up certain businesses if you do certain things or if you organize a certain way. Well, now all of a sudden the company's looking at it going, okay, well now if I'm greedy and I want to make money, the best way to do that is to get as close to the government officials as possible because they'll take the money through taxation and then give it to me. It seems like to me there's no system in which greed is more prosperous than dealing with the government. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't think of a more greedy way to go about doing business than to say, you know what? If I can't convince you to give me your money through a voluntary transaction, I'll force you to give it to me. Wow. And, the politi- and the politicians that are wielding that power, they're also greedy because they want the power. They want the control over it. Tax season is angering. But when you think about it in the context of this yeah. and know that it is practically impossible for the federal government to spend your dollars mm-hmm. in such a way which benefits you, you they are wasting your money. Yeah. And they are do not operate within a system which incentivizes them. It's not just that they're wasting the money because they're destroying your state. What they didn't steal from you they're in printing. taxes, they're destroying through inflation. So you're getting hit on both ends. I, I can't remember who, who said that inflation is a hidden tax. Friedman. But, I mean, it, it's not just – you didn't just lose – Five, ten, however, however many thousands of dollars you had to pay in taxes this year, you lost substantially more than that through inflationary monetary policy that has made you poor. The average, I think it's like the average American household is something like the equivalent of like seven thousand dollars poor because of inflation. That's that's not even accounting the fact that that federal tax receipts are at an all time high right now. And and again, this the so what of all of this goes back to. When we talk about the Great Reset, what are they talking about doing? And if you and if you erase every single conspiracy theory out there and you just focus on what they're saying and you logically apply what they would have to do at an international, you know, national, state, or local level, the sort of regulations that we need to be in place, the treaties that would need to be in right. place, the restrictions, the tax subsidization, the redistribution, that's enough to say this will necessarily it, it will do all the things that the ADL and the New York Times are saying are like, oh, these are just this are crazy. No, it isn't. Because the only way you can achieve the sort of goals that you're looking for right now is through massive government intervention into the economy, into my property rights, into my choices within the marketplace. It's the only way you can do it. And at some point when it fails to produce the results you've promised, I can look back at history. And I can predict what you will do next. Because Klaus Schwab, if he got everything he wanted tomorrow, and it wasn't producing the economic utopia he's claiming it will, I guarantee you Klaus Schwab is not going to come back and be like, you know what, gosh, I was wrong. Hey, BlackRock, because he's also using private equity firms to, to push this as well. He's threatening private companies. Yeah, that's a topic investment. of another episode we should do at some point. But he, he's doing all this. He's not going to come back and say, oh, I guess I was wrong. We should, he's going to say, no, no, no. The only reason it hasn't worked is because those people aren't cooperating. Those people aren't on board with the will of the people. And they need to be made to come on board with it. Now, that's not conspiratorial. That's just a good understanding of history. Right. Let's wrap it up, boys. All right. 
Well, look, and, we, and we've gone we've gone over we've gone over a lot of stuff today. Uh, again, I hope this has been helpful. Also, want to encourage everyone again to go into the volley chat if you have questions yep. on some of what we've done. You'd be like, okay, look, this sounds good, but I don't quite understand this. Or you guys let, went let off on me, rabbit hole. Let, how how can I you know how can I ask that question? I'm gonna let Hamilton explain yeah, yeah, the best me, way let, to do it. Let me plug this real quick because you know in Tuesday's episode, Nick, you uh, in the beginning of the episode t- told everybody a little bit about it. But this really is an interesting opportunity for us because we have not seen anyone using a platform like Volley in this space before. And there's all of these other platforms that podcasters may use, such as Facebook groups, Discord, Telegram channels. And my frustration and the reason we've never created anything like that before is because it is an excellent means of one-way communication. We send a message, you might see it respond, but we are not getting to know who you are. And in order for us to truly come to this podcast every Tuesday and Thursday and execute on our mission to prepare you with the best arguments that you can possibly make, we have to understand who you are. What do you do for a living? What conversations are taking place within the, you know, the, with your friends, family, and coworkers? And in order for us to bring the best product to the marketplace – making the argument, we have to understand that, and we want to get to know who you are. And so join us in the Volley Chat. There's a description in the bottom of every podcast, and we look forward to seeing you there. I'm there, Nick's there, Christian's there, Tina's there, and we look forward to discussing, to continuing this conversation there uh, this weekend over the weekend. So thank you. Well, I think you just closed this out. So once again, thank you for joining us this episode. Please leave us your comments. Please go to Volley Chat, and we'll see you next time.